Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Curzon Film Podcast. In this episode, we judge Judy and ask whether Gotham's new Wizard of Odd needs a brain. And that's not all. We're joined by Judy star Rufus to give us a Sewell injection. <laughs> oh my God. I'm Jake Cunningham, and this week I'm joined by a deadly duo, the Penguin of Preston, Alistair Bayman. Thank you very much for that. And the Riddler of Red Hill, Ella Kemp. Hello. How are we doing? Very good, thank you. Yeah. Ali, you were lucky enough to speak to Rufus Sewell, Mm -hmm. who plays Sidney Luft in the film, uh, one of Judy Garland's ex-partners, and we'll be talking to him in just a bit. Um, But before we do delve into that... Uh, Just to cover the ground, if people aren't aware of what this film's about, it's set in the later years of Judy Garland's life. Uh, She previously had become one of the undisputed icons of the golden age of Hollywood, but behind that success was a darker tale, one of innocence exploited, and in this new biopic directed by Rupert Gould, Renee Zellweger plays Judy in the twilight of her career. She's battered, but she's not beaten. Uh, Financial ruin forces her to return to the stage, setting 60s London alight where she reconnects with her love of performance, but old demons resurface. Now, were we excited about this when this was announced? I remember I thought that's peculiar. I I don't know if I was wanting a Judy Garland biopic, and I wasn't sure if I wanted Renée Zellweger to play her. Most definitely, yeah. I think it kind of felt like one of those films that was coming in, you know, fresh into kind of the awards category and and very much in that ilk. And yeah, I, I, I did not kind of have any burning desire to see this whatsoever yeah i mean it could kind of go one of those two ways that it's one of those biopics that gets made and is immediately dropped and forgotten Mm. about and drifts away nowhere to be seen in any awards or anything like that but in my opinion i think it's 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 on the upper end of the scale um those kind of films and i I do hope it doesn't drift out of anyone's view come uh award season ali do you want to just tell us about this conversation that you had with rufus who plays judy garland's partner or ex-partner, I should say, Sidney Luft. Sure, yeah. So um, literally as soon as the interview started, his burning passion for Judy Garland just suddenly arose and I could see twinkles in his eye when talking about Garland's first green appearance in which he played a fan of Clark Gable and he was he was a very charming guy and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have seen him recently on television more so on the big screen but this is, yeah, a particularly mature performance from him and really grounds it on kind of both ends of the film, I think. Rufus 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 Rufus
Uh, first of all, congratulations on being part of such a, a wonderful film. Thank I kind of walked into the film, you know, very ex- very excited for it, but not to kind of feel so emotionally attached to it and uh-huh. so resonant. Um, so I was wondering how the script and the project originally came to you. Well, based on my experience, it came to me the only way scripts do come to me with any chance of me actually being in the film with a direct offer. <laughs> that that That's my best way of actually um, getting a part is just to mm-hmm. be offered it. Because mm-hmm. otherwise I'd never miss an opportunity to talk them out of it somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, so it arrived with an offer already, which is always a very nice way mm-hmm. um, to get something. And um, Rene was already attached. So I read the script imagining her playing this part. And the script is an extraordinary read. Um, it's a, one of the best scripts I've read in a very long time, possibly ever. It's just, it was very complete. Um, and in my mind's eye, I was imagining Rene in it. And I was very excited about that, just because I've always been a fan of hers, but also the fact that she'd kind of seemingly been away for a while and she was the same age as um, Judy was, amazingly enough. Um, so that was very exciting for me. And and also the fact that it wasn't a very big part, that there were just two scenes, one at the beginning, one at the end. Um, but there was a whole world of background between them, you know. And also it wasn't the kind of part that is very well within my range, but not the kind of thing that people thought of me for normally. So I leapt at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very exciting. I was very glad. Weirdly enough, you know, a lot of the roles that have come to me recently have come to me from my theatre work Mm. and from theatre people. And I tend to get more interesting roles that way because the people who see me on stage tend to be more aware of of the kind of things that I used to do on stage as opposed to what I'm known for on film. So that's been the case with the last three or four jobs I've done. They've all come from theatre work that I did 10, 15 years ago. So you never know what's going to lead to what. Um, but it's been very exciting to do it, and I, I did as much research as I could so that even though there wasn't much opportunity to show all of the incredible stuff I researched about what they were like and what went on between them, there was at least a kind of feeling of shared past between us, which I think kind of informs the scenes and, and made it so interesting for us. Mm-hmm. Had you seen the play uh, Under the Rainbow before? Or were you no, unaware I, of it? No, I think I, I remember reading about it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been a big fan of Judy Garland's. Mm-hmm. I always, you know, my fascination with certain magical actors, you know, when I was very young, the things that kind of got me interested in it. I was always fascinated by and very drawn to Brando, Montgomery Clift and and but Judy Garland was always one of those people because I always thought of her as a great actress someone who whether she was acting and she's an extraordinary straight actor acting or singing just managed to communicate worlds of genuine emotion it was just something about the electricity the spell that that she conjured I've always been fascinated with her so I had already knew quite a lot about the subject and was all very, always very drawn to Judy. And the way Sid Luft talked about her in his um, autobiography, or at least the story of their relationship together, the way he described her as being a witch, not in a negative way, that the way she would hypnotize, put a spell on an audience, the, the way she had a gift of kind of like a shamanic kind of quality of spellbinding you. The way he spoke about her and the way he regarded her 
reminded me of the way I thought of her, which was quite an interesting way in. Was there any particular roles uh, of Garland you looked at before coming into the film? Because obviously, Love had a humongous part to play in A Star Is Born. Um, well, A Star Is Born, interestingly enough, I'd 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 shown it to my son a, a few weeks before the script arrived, because it's a, one of my favourite films. I love that. I love um, the Janet Gaynor. Um, Frederick March one. I love all of those versions, including the latest one, but it's a story I'm very familiar with. And, but I loved that version. Um, so the knowledge that despite all of, you know, when he's maligned and thought of as someone who basically spent all her money, well, there's a certain amount of truth in that, is that he would spend her money at the races, but at the same time, he also brought her career back from the doldrums, not just with by producing A Star Is Born, but by getting her back on stage. What she was doing in London was a repeat of an enormous success she'd had in New York after a, a terrible spell of unemployment and not being wanted, which he'd masterminded. He booked out and refurbished the theatre in New York and masterminded this series of engagements that basic, basically brought her back and led to a resurgence in her career. So there were lots of positives and negatives in their relationship. But I'd... I mean, I would recommend anyone who's interested in watching the spellbinding quality of Judy Garland is if you watch her very first ever film appearance, I think it was one of these kind of um, follies of 29, one of these kind of showcase films that we're doing in the 20s, where she was, I think, a teenager singing um, Please Mr. Gable, I think. Something like that, and it's a song written from the perspective of a fan worshipper of Clark Gable. Just tiny, little poppet-like Judy Garland singing to a, a shrine of um, of you know this movie star, but with such unbelievable commitment and passion and heart that it's it's absolutely spellbinding. You can see she's already Judy Garland. You know, just, as you might say, no wonder you're Judy Garland. And then there's if you were to watch just her singing this famous scene in um, uh, in *The Star Is Born*, where the where um, where he stumbles into a bar or whatever, it, it's, it's and sees her performing, where she's singing *The Man That Got Away*. Just an example of someone commanding. When she hits those notes, there's just something. It's not just sound. There's some. There's emotion there, and that's what Rene manages to to capture somehow. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was really extraordinary working with her because I met her as Judy Garland. I, I got to know her as Judy Garland in those scenes before I'd spent any time with her in makeup, you know. It's an unusual roundabout way to meet a person. Was it extremely uncanny, kind of, the first scene you have in the film? Obviously, you just open the door and she's there. Well, we didn't film or... it necessarily in of, order. Of course, I, but I'd but... met her the day before. Um, and, but I was brought on set when she was filming, so she was done up. I mean, she didn't say, hello, I'm Judy Garland, <laughs> but, I mean, she introduced herself and I introduced myself as we were. But she was in costume, she had the teeth in, she, you know, and there were, there were little shadows of Judy Garland. I wasn't sure which was which. I, I think I met the two of them at the same time. And then the next day we filmed, I think, one of the final scenes, when there's only two. But, um, and... The uncanniness, I mean, I suppose the fact that it just felt like being with a real person. Um, and, and there was a kind of shared history already that if it's, all, if it's there, you don't mess with it, you don't over-talk it, you don't over-examine it. You just let it happen. So it felt thoroughly normal. 
And at the end of the day, I thought, how extraordinary, how thoroughly normal that felt, because it just, I'd got to know a person, and I think that person, I'm not quite sure which, whether that was Judy Garland or Renee I was getting to know, but um, it's an interesting way of working, coming in halfway through, and, and she's already established, you know. I think the normalness definitely comes across in the film. Yeah, good. I sadly think that's all we've got time right. for. Thank you very much for joining us. All right, thank you. Cheers. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, thank you, Rufus, for lending us your time there. I want to start with the very first take of the film. Uh, it's shot by Olive Berkland, who had previously worked uh, with Bart Layton on American Animals and The Imposter, and he's a great director of photography. And we start with this amazing one take on the set of The Wizard of Oz, and it follows Judy kind of winding along the yellow brick road, and we just kind of get a sense of how much she's being manipulated. It's just from those very first scenes, we've got Louis B. Meyer orchestrating almost like a puppeteer, uh, this starlet. And it's an incredibly well-made scene. Uh, it's not one of these one-take shots that's telling you how well-made it is. It's just totally this dreamlike feeling that drops you into the golden age of Hollywood. And then it's made all the worse by seeing kind of through the curtain, literally like in The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> Uh, and just a little bit of how the meat gets made and it's not good to see. And in some ways that's familiar territory that we've seen in the Hollywood fame stories, uh, the, the cost of it and all that. But we're also seeing it executed in a really beautiful way. And for me, I think that's this film. People will find familiar beats in it, but it's the technical side of it, the performance side of it, that elevates it for me beyond your kind of regular drama. Completely agree. And looking forward to this film, I was also a bit a bit confused thinking, do we need another big biopic? And it might be this overly bloated, paint-by-numbers, chronological thing. But, yeah, you get that sense from the first shot that it's a very focused and immersive picture. It really lets you relate to her specific feelings that she's going through both at this young age and then... Um, at the latest time in her life, which the film focuses on a lot more. And it's, I mean, it's really moving. And I've, I think it's a really smart choice to focus in that way. And I think it's a choice that could not pay off if the performances weren't so good. But when you've got Rennie Zellweger doing what she's doing here, I found it really, really effective the, all the way throughout. Yeah, and, and I think it's an opportunity for Judy Garland's story to be kind of reclaimed as well. Uh, she's often painted as this kind of tragic figure and wouldn't it all be better if she didn't have these addictions and mm. vices? Um, 
but this film goes about it to show that that like that's not on her like this is from a life led in a world that needed a lot more control and a lot more awareness than it actually did mm. i think maybe we're painting this film as quite a somber thing which mm. really it's not it's no. a, it's a jubilant joyous piece of work and central to that is rene zellweger and who's not doing a Judy Garland impression. I, this I, is not Bridget Jones. Anymore. No. <laughs> um, it is It is transformative. And she is fantastic in the role. And I wasn't quite sure about her as Judy Garland, the performer, until a point maybe 30, 40 minutes in where she's allowed to let loose. Oh, it's incredible. And th- what I really love about her performance as well is... I found when the film started and you first saw her like at parties or having conversations with people kind of before the tour in London kicks off, I think she's she's got this way about her that's very, very, very specific and very mannered, but that is also very, very fragile. And I thought this could be a very heavy and quite painful picture to watch. But then, yeah, when she starts performing on the stage, she just... I feel like this performance isn't even just transformative within her career from previous roles to this one. Within the same film, from scene to scene, when she's just living and then singing, she's just completely different. And like her eyes are about ten times wider and just her whole body language readjusts. She's amazing when she's singing. It never feels gimmicky in a way that um, you don't see kind of the the strings of the performance happening. It's so organic. Mm. No, it's it's not like a, a like a revenanty thing where yeah. we're right. we're expected to think, look how much she's trying. Yeah. You know, she's not yeah. trying. She succeeds every time she sings. Yeah, this is it. Um, and I think what you're right about um, how she how she approaches these two sides of the performance mm. and performance, I think, is key because in those bits of her life where she is not on stage or in front of a camera she is performing as well if it's for her kids if it's for her husband or if it's just for a taxi driver she feels like constantly everything is being plucked from a a former script or something she just delivers Mm. everything with the confidence and the patter of someone who has grown up having to perform other people's lines and in a way it feels like they're not hers that this is just how she's been told that she has to perform there's a line at one point that she says, I can't remember who she says it to, but she says, I'm only Judy Garland for one hour or two hours a night. And the rest of the time she tells, I think she tells people several times, several times, just call me Judy. And I, I don't know, I kind of wonder often with biopics how, if the name of the film has any relevance or they've just plucked something because it kind of sounds, you know, easy. And it's quite nice seeing, yeah, how those two sides of performance really inform the way she considers her own identity and you know how, what she calls herself mm. and we get that switch where we come out of this daily life and she turns up on stage finally she's there's actually a really very funny and very well executed sequence in which a drunk judy has to be kind of convinced by someone pretending to be a doctor uh, to get on stage in front of people and open the talk of the town theater and it, it's almost shot like a heist film. And I think that's maybe Ollie bringing in that American Animals mm-hmm. experience because it's kind of, you're having to get the gang together. You have someone explaining the plan. Here's how we're going to pull it off. But the end result is a wonderful duel because mm-hmm. uh, she, she is an absolute belter in those moments. And you could just, for me, you, you know, I could just watch compilation clips of all of these bits on stage, which was, a, which was the uh, Hackney Empire repurposed mm-hmm. uh, to become the talk of the town. Mm-hmm. 
It's interesting, I think, uh, that Rupert Gould is the director here. He's the director of the Almeida Theatre here in London, and he's moved into making films. He made a film a few years ago uh, called True Story. And it's, I think, those performances, those stage performances, wouldn't be as magical as they were if they weren't bringing or being created by someone who so knows the theatre like that. Mm, It also feels like kind of a a moment for him as well, because... Uh, his work across the BBC in terms of the Hollow Crown, you know, it's very, very theatre with a capital T in terms of Shakespeare. It's these grand performances, you know, from um, Benedict Cumberbatch and everything like that. Whereas this, yeah, as you said, the moment it kind of gets onto that stage and, yeah, as you mentioned at the Hackney Empire, they actually had to build that little stage that kind of goes out into the audience and that creates a really organic feel in the way the camera pushes around those moments and and kind of places judy obviously very much on a statue but it feels very immersive it's it's funny enough similar yeah to to go into the almeida in a way or the bridge theater or something Mm. like that where it feels like a a particular experience and yeah his his ability to direct a star but then also the surrounding was was particularly impressive given that this yeah was the first of his films i'd seen yeah and uh he was his the inspiration for the lighting of these scenes at the theater actually came from kanye west and what? yeah uh from his set at glastonbury he had been watching that and then brought that towards this and uh, i think it's in an interview with little white lights he says that there's a little bit of kanye in judy <laughs> but i mean whatever he needs to do it really because i think considering the number of music biopics or music films that we've had in the last however many years it's been now I think a lot of them sometimes I can find the the actual musical bits of them they can be quite underwhelming and it can just seem like it's all kind of just working mechanically and you're just kind of performing the song well, kind of like watching it like Glastonbury on TV well, it's like exactly. here's your filming the stage here right. are your reaction shots from the crowd and this is not that yeah this has been and really so much more alive yeah. it's great yeah um, I think it, it's not a perfect film I think as we mentioned that the script may be uh, kind of familiar territory structurally for where you'd expect a thing like this to go um, and there, there, there's a, a kind of plot line with, with two fans who are really into Judy Garland who come every night to the show for me it's a that there's a moment where I definitely cried, but I was also definitely aware that I was kind of being told to mm-hmm. do so. Um, and there are little bits like that um, that could maybe have been like trimmed or finessed even because mm-hmm. they, they are important parts of her career to cover, uh, particularly her importance to the gay community. Um, but I think maybe a bit more well-roundedness in that mm-hmm. area. I think that scene does give us the rendition of happy yeah. which is which is beautiful just kind mm. of played on a, on a piano and it is quite sincere just to see two the very very clearly working class just to kind of give the film a little bit further context outside of this glitzy glamour 60s of london mm. um so yeah as much as i can see it's kind of a tearjerker i did appreciate that scene a little bit uh, right um so that is judy which is going to be out in cinemas and i would recommend that you go and find it as soon as you can Uh, But now it's time to trade yellow bricks for grey ones and walk from Emerald City to Gotham as we move on to Todd Phillips' Joker. Drawing upon the work of Martin Scorsese, especially the king of comedy and taxi driver, that director Todd Phillips, who you may know from the Hangover films, uh, has delivered a new origin story for the clown with the cracked smile. Joaquin Phoenix plays Arthur Fleck, a clown for hire by day, who spends nights as a struggling stand-up comic, but when he is pushed too far... The Joker is ready to regurgitate Gotham City's hate. Now, a lot of people are saying the Joker's on the audience for turning out to this one. But at Venice, Phillips and gang were laughing. Ella, 
what happened over at the film festival recently. So over at Venice Film Festival, the jury, um, helmed by Lucretia Martel, gave Joker the top prize, which is the Golden Lion, which for context was um, won last year by Alfonso Cuaron's Roma. And the year before that, it was won by The Shape of Water, directed by Guillermo del Toro. In a weird way, that positions this as a front-runner for Best Picture nominations. I mean, Which is certainly something it wants, um, and I'm very curious to see what audiences make of it, um, Mm. because I don't think there has been a film this year that has caused as much kind of controversy prior to it even being released as this one. Well, what was interesting was with the, the whole Venice thing, was that when it premiered, the second all the reviews dropped, there was there was an astonishing, overwhelming number of five-star reviews. There were some negative ones, but, you know, nowhere near as many. Prior to all of that happening, how much interest did you have in a Joker film? I was looking forward to it, weirdly. I didn't... So when the the news first came out, when they said Joker and there was just one picture, I thought, "Mm, I don't really need this. It's, you know, fine for people who enjoy it. But then when the trailers came out, I thought, this actually looks quite interesting, looks quite gripping... You know, I like Joaquin Phoenix. I can't say I've ever had any feelings positive or negative towards Todd Phillips. But yeah, I thought the trailers were really well put together. And then Venice happened and I, I don't know anymore. Yeah, Ali? Yeah, kind of on that point, as soon as the still came out of Joaquin Phoenix and, you know, in the suit with uh, his face of makeup on and then knowing they were shooting it in New York and like... I mean, having... it's safe to say Scorsese's your boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Scorsese, Scorsese, Marty is my man. And uh, I think that a director who comes out and straight up says, this is this, this is this, as opposed to kind of leaving the audience or the critics down to interpretation, is kind of coming out fighting his corner before anything has, has happened and obviously has, has kind of unfolded over the past few days. He doesn't want to be a woke guy. I think that, yeah, I was annoyingly excited for this going going into it and yeah as Ella said the trailer's built upon that alright uh, but now it has come out we have seen it and uh, Ella I was intrigued when you saw this film and you gave it a star rating of 2.5 now a 2.5 out of 5 to me that is middle of the road that is like generic like Sunday afternoon drama that just lets the day go by absolutely fine there's nothing wrong with it okay so I wish it was generic. I wish it was boring. I wish it was forgettable. But the thing, every time I loved something about this film, and there are things that I find really impressive and, you know, amazing on the big screen, and I would definitely recommend a trip to the cinemas to see it. But whenever anything like that would be impressive, there would be a scene, whether it would be 30 seconds later or half an hour later, that would just... Just, it just feels like a slap in the face. And you're just like, why, why are you annoying me? Why have you done this? Everything was going so well. Um... So, uh, d- difficult one. Yeah, I difficult think one. It's not, you know, it's not a plot spoiler. As soon as the credits came up, um, there was an old school logo of Warner, and the moment that started, I was like, okay, this is the line we're going down. We're trying to, well, the director and, and his team are trying to place it in this kind of lineage of really good, kind of grainy old school films. And the moment, you know, it goes into Gotham and kind of the production design there. Is, is particularly impressive, but then, yeah, as Ella said, particularly when it gets to the latter half where Arthur Fleck kind of um, disappears somewhat and the Joker arises, that, uh, yeah, it was it was a constant slap in the face and also became particularly annoying 
not just in terms of its violence, but kind of narratively, the plot holes that existed. Yeah, I mean, I think it like kind of wiggles around on a plot uh, that it's not doesn't fully commit to uh, or doesn't quite know what to do with in terms of tying this particular Joker to the lore of Batman and of making The timeline doesn't make sense. (laughs) It doesn't. I'm just going to, that's all I'm going to say about the plot. When you watch it, when I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, then that'll connect up and that'll connect up. And it took me several weeks to think, wait a minute, when we get the next film, what, like, how old But, like, this is is the thing. It's a stand, like... and and this is maybe uh, an issue with it that people can either care about or not and you've kind of got to pick a lane on it and I'm not sure the filmmakers do if it's a mm. pure standalone thing you've got to treat it as such but then if you keep dropping in these references to particular graphic novels and particular plot lines then you're also kind of hedging your bets a bit on that there are really impressive bits in here um, Ella you've noted down uh, Hilda Gudnadotter who's the cellist who's composed the score who also did the score for Chernobyl yes she's amazing I was not familiar with her work I mean I I watched Chernobyl and I I must say I can't remember going to seek out the composer afterwards but hearing her work on this I mean I've I have seen that some people didn't care for it it is very very abrasive and very in your face uh, a lot of the time but I think so many elements in this film are and I don't think enough of them work. But this element, the score, is I think it's astonishing. It's so, it's scary. And it just, it's, it stays with you. And I feel like that it's something that kind of haunts everyone as much. The characters, you can almost see that like they've kind of got a bit of a headache all of the time. <laughs> and it's one that, you know, would affect them as much as everyone else watching. And, then I was, and that one I was like, fair enough. This is really impressively done. Um, yeah, I enjoyed that. Back to that point, though, about when it does something so good, such as the score, kind of undercuts it straight away with a needle drop that's so... It's got an itchy feeling that as soon as the score happens, like, let's give a needle drop, let's 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 get that jukebox down. I think that's true, yeah. Needle um, drop. Yeah, a, a particular choice, yeah. um, which maybe uh, will make British listeners maybe more uneasy than yeah. it will in America. Um, and it's in a moment of celebration. And yeah. It just kind of leaves you a little bit queasy there and not in maybe the kind of edgy way that the film intended. What I found with that scene was that while I was watching it, I didn't, I couldn't remember what it was. And I knew that I recognised it. And I thought, I know that I shouldn't be finding this catchy. And I can't remember why. But the whole scene, I was thinking, I know there's a reason I shouldn't be enjoying this as much as I am. And then when I got home and looked up, I felt like an absolute fool. And I think it's really shameful. Well, they like, but this is exactly the conversation mm-hmm. that it wants us to have. Mm-hmm. You, you, I, I was on the, on the way here. I walked past a poster for the play Bitter Wheat, the David mm. Mamet play with John Malkovich taking on a kind of Weinstein-like figure. And there was a there was a red banner across the poster that said something along the lines of, you have to see it to be able to say you're offended. And in a way... I, I that, saw it. I was offended. But <laughs> um, you're part of the discourse. Oh, that's the thing. Love that for me. Yeah. And so yeah, maybe, maybe that's the quote that we need to kind of leave this chat on. But maybe another quote to leave it on is one from 30 Rock where Liz Lemon says that the things that men like that are boring, football, motorcycles, steak restaurants, and really dark superhero movies. I love her. 
Can we be friends? And uh, so that is Joker, which is certainly one for uh, fans of, as we've mentioned, those those seventies Scorsese films, um, Taxi Driver, King of Comedy, um, but any any kind of Batman, Dark Knight completists out there who want to check this one out, I would also recommend as a pairing Antonio Campos's film Christine, um, which if you don't know anything about, I would recommend going in kind of without as much knowledge mm, yeah. as you can. Um, but is certainly an inspiration for this film. I'm and sure. then watch Kate plays Christine, the documentary, which is particularly great as well. What a triple bill! If you see this one and you see Joaquin Phoenix in it, who we haven't re- really mentioned, um, it's very good. I mean, he and he does kind of transform himself in a very intense way, mm. uh, kind of the the opposite of that Judy performance we were talking about. Um, and you're very aware, and everyone's very aware of how much work has gone into this. Um, there is a collection of actor transformations up on Curzon Home Cinema. We've got stuff like Borg McEnroe, which is, features a great Shia LaBeouf, uh, Destroyer, uh, which has got Nicole Kidman in, and Good Time, which I know we, we'd love to champion on this show. Uh, Robert Pattinson sporting a quite lovely blonde mop and, uh, and uh, Benny Safdie completely transforming into a character and leaving one of the most beautiful moments I can remember of modern cinema in the final scene oh yeah and beautiful song with Iggy Pop there mm-hmm. uh, in those final moments so do check that one out because uh, we're very excited for Uncut Gems the new Safdie Brothers film that's coming out very soon as well if you're hankering after some events uh, we've got London Film Festival happening across the London cinemas so do go and check out the LFF programme if you want to come down and catch something before it hits cinemas. Uh, but otherwise, I think that might be about it. If you've got any thoughts on Judy or Joker, let us know by tweeting at Curzon Cinemas, or you can tweet us directly as well. I'm on Twitter as Jake H. Cunningham. Ali, you're there as... Alice Dare Bayman. Sorry, it's my full name. Um, and that's with a D. That's with a D, not a T. Yep. Ella. I am at Ella underscore Kemp. Lovely. And if it's your first time listening to the show, then do please subscribe. You can do that on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your pods. And when you're there, if you could leave us a review or a comment, that would be absolutely wonderful. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.